Welcome to Life, Death, Law. I'm Liza Hanks. Please join me in this podcast as we explore estate planning. Birth, old age, sickness, and death are part of every human life, yet most of us avoid talking about it or planning for it. Death is like sex, really. We all do it. Most of us are embarrassed to talk about it, and most of us have questions we're afraid to ask. Fear no more. I'm here to answer your questions without judgment. Life, Death, Law brings you real-life stories, interviews with experts, and practical tips to answer your questions about all of it, from birth to death and everything in between. Are you ready? Let's get started. In today's episode of Life, Death, Law, I am so excited to be talking with Dr. Elizabeth Landsberg. She's a geriatrician, a doctor who specializes in working with older adults and their families. She's a graduate of Stanford, she trained at Harvard, and she's currently an adjunct clinical professor at the Stanford School of Medicine, so obviously she's super smart. But that's not why I asked her to be on the show. I asked Elizabeth to be on my show because so many of my clients have to grapple with dementia one way or another, either their own or that of a loved one. So if you're worried about whether or not a loved one should see a doctor, they just don't quite seem to be the person they used to be and you're wondering about whether they should be evaluated for cognitive issues, and if you are, you'd like to figure out how to find the right doctor and what to look for, or if you're someone who wants to help somebody with dementia maintain their quality of life for as long as possible, stay tuned. You are in for a treat. Hey, Elizabeth, thanks for being on the show. I so appreciate it. Well, thank you, Liza. I I appreciate you taking the time to talk about these important topics. Well, I think it is an important topic, especially with the holidays coming up. So what I hope we might start with is uh, talking about, you know, you come home for the holidays, you haven't seen your parents or other elderly relatives for a while, and you're concerned that they're not the way they used to be. And I thought you might have something useful to say to our readers about, uh, you know, what to look for, what to be worried about, and what not to be worried about in that situation. Well, um, I think the holidays are a really good time, um, particularly since when you live with someone, you don't notice the changes as much as if you saw them, you know, six months ago, and now um, their mood might seem to be different, their approach to engaging with others is different, and, you know, their memory um, might have declined, and it's, it's, Something that's important to not just brush off as, oh, well, mom is stressed, you know, trying to get Thanksgiving dinner out, but to think about, well, you know, are these changes affecting, we'll we'll say mom, for instance, but it could be a spouse, you know, it could be a sibling, um, but we'll just use mom. Um, So I think that traditionally, if someone was worried about, someone having changes and having dementia, they take them to the doctor and they do this test called the mini mental status exam. Um, And it's a 30 point test. And if it was over 24, you were told, oh, everything's okay. Uh, And if it was under 24, you were told, oh, this person has dementia, take away, you know, their abilities to do most everything. And uh, what do you think is wrong with that test? Well, um, it doesn't determine what um, what changes affect function and independence so well? It, 
it's an okay screen. There are other screens that are better. Um, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment or the MOCA. Uh-huh. Uh, that actually is also free and online and comes in several different languages as um, testing for abstract thinking. Let me circle back to why that's important. Well, so, well, actually, before you get to why that's important, I'm still trying to figure out if I need to take mom to the doctor. So what should I, no. be, lo- what should I be looking at? <laughs> okay. Um, well, it was if she is forgetting appointments, forgetting to take her medications, um, but it could also be something more subtle. It could be that there's new people in her life, that the plumber, you know, is now spending a lot of time at her house and has become her financial advisor or her boyfriend, or that she's giving away money to people who call for it, you know, uh, on the telephone or online. Or it could be that, you know, even I've seen it where even charitable organizations, once they get a name on a list, kind of automated. I, I wouldn't want to think that they were particularly taking advantage of elders. Um, but changes in judgment, um, even before changes in memory, can cause a lot of problems for elders who are taking care of their own finances. And what's a good strategy for someone who says, hey, mom, I think we should go see the doctor because I feel like your judgment isn't what it used to be. And she says, oh, I'm fine. Leave right. me so alone. Those are the- the wrong words to start. Okay, what are the right words? <laughs> the, so anytime you say, you know, mom, you're worse, we need to get your judgment checked. Um, I think another way to say it would be, you know, mom, I know you are a very strong and independent woman and we want to keep you that way. So we want to just see how, what we need to do to keep you independent. Which is, you know, a little bit of spin. Um, But I think that it's important that an evaluation be done. And it needs to be with someone who understands the disease process. So it used to be the DSM-4 described dementia as a decline in memory. Now the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Manual for um, Mental Illnesses, reports that you just need to have a decline in cognitive function in several areas that affect, you know, day-to-day living. So um, it it could be that your memory is fine, that you remember things, but that you get more angry than you meant to, and you just react to people, and you cut people off, and, you know, now you're not going to go back to that doctor because they insulted you by doing a memory test, or that you're being too trusting. You lost the ability to assess risk and you're bringing people into your life that are risk. So those are things that um, need to be assessed. And those are probably the earliest changes and the most difficult ones to pick up. You know, but if you love somebody, uh, you know, I have the sense that you have this intuitive sense that something's wrong, right? Because those are, are pretty subtle signs of somebody's behavior changing. And I guess uh, what you're saying is telling me that people should sort of trust their gut here, right? that they shouldn't just rely on mom doesn't know what day it is or mom does know what day it is, but she doesn't quite seem to be the person she used to be. That not that kind of what you're pointing to? Actually, that is exactly, you know, what I'm trying to communicate. And that is a challenge for our entire culture because we are not, as doctors, 
trained to pick up on that. We're trained to do a test, and either the test is positive or negative, and then we go on to the next pass. Similarly, in the legal and financial areas, they have the sense of if you, let me, let me give you an example, like Mickey Rooney, you know, he was financially abused um, by his wife. And I remember listening to the lawyers who worked with him. And I asked, did you ever get neuropsychologic testing? And they say, well, Mickey really, you know, didn't have dementia, but he got conserved and the conservator didn't get everything they wanted and Mickey didn't get everything he wanted. And that doesn't really make sense to me that this is where, you know, more intensive testing, such as neuropsychologic testing, um, would cut through someone who socially sounds okay, but can't assess risk anymore or can't um, do the abstract assessments to know whether a intervention is a good thing for them or not. Um, are there are there simple things that a family member could do to try and discern whether it's time to take somebody in for that kind of testing? I, we've been on panels before, and I've heard you talk about some things that you did with like drawing the face of a clock. Um, <laughs> yes, that's well, I, yeah. So there, I, there are some that are. Um, you know, that are verified, such as the mini cog, where you ask someone to remember three words, you have them draw a clock. And I like it to say 10 minutes after 11, because it's a little bit abstract, you have to put the hour hand on the 11, and the minute hand on the two. And if you've got someone who puts the hands on the 10 and the 11, you're like, something's off. Um, and then you ask them what those three words were again, that's been um, verified, and is a good screening start. The other thing I like to do that's really pretty easy is to ask folks, so do you have any medical problems? Do you take any medications? Have you been in the hospital in the last five or 10 years? And if they say, nope, I'm fine. I haven't done any of that. Then you know there's something really wrong that needs to be addressed right now because it's gone beyond just the financial to their day-to-day well-being. And then the last one that I like to do, and this is not verified, is um, have them tell me what is 25% of $22.50. Look, I can't even do that. (laughs) So here's the deal. It's okay if you can't, but then you need someone to help you with the details of your finances. Because if you can't sort out what's one-fourth of $22.50, you shouldn't be doing your taxes. You shouldn't be entering into complicated financial agreements, such as reverse mortgages, if you don't understand the basics of the math. Is it okay to use a calculator? No. Oh my gosh, no. I, I flunked your cognitive test. It's going to have to change my whole life. So, okay, so these are simple things that um, you might be able to do with a parent uh, when you're concerned about their welfare before you take them to the doctor. Is that what you're suggesting? It is, but the other thing that's interesting is, you know, particularly men who've been working in finance or engineering or, you know, positions of leadership, if they can't do that, is the, you know, explanation they have of why they can't do that. And it'll tell you a lot about whether they accept help or not. You know, if if one gentleman got the numbers right, but couldn't see that the decimal point was in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. I waited about five minutes for him to kind of recognize that, and he didn't. And that told me that he could be making errors like that. He could be taken advantage of, and he wasn't going to recognize it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, you know, you're, you're really good with numbers, but 
you know, some of the details get missed. And I think that it's important to have someone help you. And he's like, no, I would have gotten it, which mm-hmm. tells me he needs to help him, which is fits in with his behavior before where he'd gotten into financial trouble, but had, you know, said that he was just fine and didn't need any help. How about driving? Can you talk a little bit about driving? I, I know a lot of times my clients um, will have trouble with driving before they have trouble with a lot of other things. Uh, and they'll resist uh, any intervention on the part of their kids because it means giving up their independence. And they say, no, I'm fine. It was just an accident. The other person cut me off. Um, I just got lost that day. So driving seems to be an area, too, where uh, problems show up early. I don't know if that's medically true, but that's what I see in my practice. Right. That's another area that relies on judgment and executive function, integration of, you know, having quick reaction to understanding what's going on around you and reacting properly to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that is a key place that needs to be addressed up front. A, because, you know, if an elder has lost their judgment, they could kill someone like the old man in L.A. who, you know, ran into a market and killed five or seven people. Um, that said, you know, the loss of life is one issue. The second loss of life is liability because if, if a loved one does that, they're liable for the damages. So it's a serious issue and it's a very touchy one. You know, in America, we're very independent and, you know, taking away one's right to drive can be seen as, you know, taking away their independence and controlling them, um, the way I address it is I will send a letter to the DMV saying I'm concerned, you know, about some changes. And I think this person needs a driving test, you know, so it's not like I'm saying they can't, I'm saying it needs to be evaluated or when I'm working with someone and they want to be driving and I have concerns about their function, I will say, you know what, let's go to a driving coach first. So you at least get them evaluated um, and then take it from there. No, that's super helpful. So, so if we decide that uh, mom needs to go see a doctor, um, and we don't know anything about this field, what what kind of doctor do we look for to get these evaluations done properly? That's an interesting question. It depends where you live. I mean, here in the Bay Area, we're very lucky. We have a number of geriatricians who can integrate in the understanding of uh, elders from a complete medical point of view, as well as they're usually more socially, um, psychologically integrated to understanding the changes of adults as they get older. Wait, um, wait, I think maybe you should describe or explain uh, what a geriatrician is, because I think a lot of our listeners may never have heard that term. So a geriatrician is a physician who's gone back for more training uh, in the physiology and the health of um, adults over the age of 65. And what's really interesting is, you know, it, we're not the same from age 30 to age 80. Things start changing quite a bit as we get older. Um, we our, our cognition can decline. Uh, our strength declines. Our muscle mass declines. Our fat, unfortunately, goes up. And that affects how we are affected by medications. Uh, and then how we are affected by changes in blood pressure, changes in blood sugar, and our reactions to medications is definitely different than um, what it is for younger adults. So, so, that's, so 
Okay, so if somebody's a geriatrician, it says so, like, on their professional credentials, on their door, like, how do I know if someone's a geriatrician? So a lot of people say they're geriatricians, meaning that they take care of, or, or that they give geriatric care, you know, meaning that they take care of old, older individuals, but you have to look at their training, you know, it might be that they are in medicine or family practice and that doesn't mean they're not good doctors but it doesn't mean that they understand the changes for elders and how the medications affect them. So there used to be 12,000 geriatricians out of a total of 600,000 physicians and unfortunately that's decreased to 6,000. So there are places that don't have any geriatricians. Right. So is a geriatrician the doctor who would do those neuropsych tests that you mentioned? Well, no. Uh, I, I don't think you need to start with those tests first. I think that it is good to go see your physician to see, you know, is it the medications? And medications I think no elder should take would be uh, Xanax or Alprazolam. I think that uh, Ativan or Lorazepam for long term is really not a good idea. Uh, in my practice, I use no hypnotics or sleeping pills, no Ambien, uh, and definitely no anticholinergic medications such as Tylenol PM. Actually, it's the PM, the Benadryl that's the problem. Um, bladder pills like um, Vesicare or Sanctura or uh, Detrol. A number of these medications can make folks look like they have dementia, but they really are much worse from the side effects of the medication. Okay, so just to clarify, if, if I come home for the holidays and I think mom isn't herself and I feel like she's exhibiting poor judgment or agitation or aggression that she didn't used to exhibit and I want her to get evaluated, you're telling me the first thing I should do is find a geriatrician or a doctor with at least experience taking care of elderly people and evaluate her first to see if she's on some medications that are making her seem this way and that it's not an underlying brain issue, right? right? Well, so that's the start. And then you do blood tests to check for anemia. You check on the liver, the kidneys, the thyroid is a big one. You'd also want to do a head cat scan at least. You know, it might be that she fell a couple months ago and that she's got some bleeding on her brain or she might have a brain tumor. Uh, she might have little strokes. You know, that's the sorts of things you want to do first. Um, there's a lot of um, enthusiasm these days for getting the MRI, which gives you better detailed uh, information, but also the, the PET scan, the SPEC scan, you know, that are supposed to be better about picking up Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And while these tests, which are still... Um, investigational can give more information it still is not an absolute predictor of who is going to advance to dementia it increase it will give you the increased risk ratio mm. if it's positive um, but that's a little different that's like doing your genetic testing about getting APOE uh, genes tested to see what your risk is going to be in the future. Huh. Okay. Well, I wonder if we could switch gears a little bit to the families who are dealing with someone who has been diagnosed with um, some form of dementia or some, some, some form of illness that's affecting their cognition um, in two areas. Because I know that 
the clients I work with often struggle with either a loved one who's becoming resistant and aggressive and defiant, or just somebody who is has dementia is getting increasingly you know ill from it, and the family wants to provide them with the best quality of life. So in those two areas, what would you let's start with the aggression one. How do you deal with somebody who is becoming aggressive, is becoming resistant? It's hard to take care of that person. What should that family do? Well, actually, I'd like to flip it because I see it as a continuum going the other way. Okay. So I always start with, um, for this person, what makes life worth living and, you know, do as much of that as possible. So if, you know, dad loves uh, baseball games, but he's getting more agitated with more people around, if you have the money, why not buy him a box seat? get there early before the crowds, you know, maybe have a place where he can relax and, and take a little nap, um, take him to the game and then, you know, take him back afterwards, realizing that the next day he's going to be wiped out. That's kind of one example of, you know, as the dementia progresses and he would just never survive in the bleacher seats. Um, but maybe he can, you know, enjoy the game in the box seats mm-hmm. or it's, you can say that, you know, mom, you know, likes to eat out, likes to have events, and she gets too upset when she's at the restaurant. Well, maybe it's time to have, you know, take out at home or do a picnic in, you know, the, excuse me, I think the next thing I would do would be a picnic in the park where there's less people around, but it can still be festive. Mm-hmm. So I'm huge on making every day enjoyable um, to not, and I think having help at home can be really good if you can afford it. And the key there is you get, you need to find the caregivers who can engage with your loved one, that they will, you know, take them out walking, you know, take them to the beach, um, play music for them, dance with them. Not, we'll just sit there and watch them watch TV, Mm -hmm. you know, and check their phone, you know, a few times every hour. Uh, the core of caring for elders with dementia is figuring out what they enjoy and keeping them engaged, keeping them going to, you know, church or synagogue or the mosque. And if they can't tolerate the church service, well, maybe, um, they can go to Bible study, you know, keeping people connected is huge. What about keeping them connected is huge. Like, why does that help? I'll give an example. I have one little lady who had been big in her garden club and now, you know, she's um, doesn't want any interventions, doesn't want her medications, although she's diabetic. She's not at home anymore, but she's in independent housing and has been told she should be over in the, the dementia care, but she does not want it. And she seems kind of, you know, adrift, not really engaged in what's going on at the senior community. But when she goes back and she meets her friends from the garden club, she's a different person. You know, she has a connection. She has something to talk about. And I think that is huge. Um, it, it gives people more the, the parts of who they were as the dementia takes their ability to make new connections. Okay, that's really helpful. And then in terms of the aggression and how to help somebody who's really agitated, uh, what would you advise families to do? Well, that's when um, you need to get a physician who understands elders and dementia. Uh, Because what I often see done wrong is they call it anxiety 
and they give them Xanax or Ativan um, or, you know, God forbid, Haldol just to quiet or sedate them. When what really needs to happen is you need to have good geriatric principles. And I have tried to develop this in my website, elderconsult.com. I have a whole page of psychoactive medications. There's actually several steps to it, um, which get talked about, but really don't get put into play in a lot of medical um, care communities. So the first thing that must happen is you must take away the medications that make them more agitated. So such as I was horrified to find out my dad, who's not agitated, but, you know, his memory is not as good as it used to be, um, was taking Tylenol PM. You need to get rid of all the antipsychotic, excuse me, anticholinergic medications. And the good place to look for is this medication. A problem is the beers list, B-E-E-R-S list. And anticholinergic medications are a problem because the nerve cells talk to each other using choline. And as one develops dementia, whether it's vascular dementia or Alzheimer's, the choline decreases. And these medications being at Benadryl, Tylenol PM, um, the bladder pills, uh, Detrol, Sanctura, Mabetric, um, decrease the choline even faster. And it can make people more agitated, more confused. Um, and also cause trouble with their sleep-wake cycle. So you want to get rid of the anticholinergic medications. You want to get rid of the medications that are going to make them more angry. Um, A a very popular seizure medication, Keppra or Levitrisium, uh, can make people more paranoid and aggressive, but not everyone. So I think you take away those medications first, and then you treat pain. Um, This, I thought, was not terribly controversial until last year, you know, we in this country are suffering through the opioid epidemic crisis. But if you look at, you know, the populations that have been studied, it goes up to the age of 64. So they really haven't looked at the effect of opiates in elders, 70s, 80s, 90s. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, all elders should be put on morphine. Uh, In fact, I almost never use morphine. But I think that we need to pay more attention to pain, such as someone who had arthritis before they got dementia. Uh, One of the things I like to say is dementia does not cure arthritis. I would start by giving them long-acting Tylenol, it's 6.50 a couple times a day, three times a day, um, to help decrease pain. Right. So you're saying that sometimes people are agitated because they're uncomfortable, Right. right? They're uncomfortable, they're bored, they're hungry, you know, they've been left in a wet brief, but... I hear people call them diapers, which makes me cringe. Um, so it may be an unmet need or they're uncomfortable in one way or another. Boredom, I think, is what I see the most. Um, if you really don't want someone to be up all night, you really can't let them sleep all day. So it's those sorts of things that I think need to be attended to first. And then if they really are getting more angry than they would have otherwise, and you've taken all the other approaches, you know, you might try medications to help take the angry edge off. And that quick anger comes more from changes in the frontal lobes. That's where our personality and our social graces are. And, you know, that, that leads mom to start cussing like a truck driver when she was always a very proper lady, you know, earlier. Or, you know, might lead dad or mom to be, you know, sexually inappropriate, touching the caregiver's thigh 
and they would never have done that, you know, 20 years ago. So there are some medications that can help with that. I prefer to start with the antidepressants um, because the side effects aren't quite so bad, something like citalopram. But you've got to be careful because Prozac can make people more agitated. Cymbalta is used a lot to treat pain, but Cymbalta and Effexor can make people more uh, overstimulated and aggressive as well. Oh, my goodness. It sounds there's just so many moving parts to this. And I guess I'd there ask are. if there was one thing that you would like family members to keep in mind when they're uh, working with a loved one who seems to be having these issues. And what's the one most important thing you'd like your family members to think about? The one most important thing is your loved one isn't doing this on purpose. And that to them, the world is a very perplexing place. And to be there for them with love and keep them engaged and connected and keep them um, physically active. And that will take you a long way. Well, thank you so much. I, I know that your patients are lucky to have you. And I hope that uh, people listening today got some good ideas about something that's just such a difficult issue in so many families. Well, thank you, Liza. I, I, I appreciate it. You've been listening to my discussion with Dr. Elizabeth Landsverk a trained geriatrician and the founder of Elder Consult Geriatric Medicine, where she offers a house calls-based practice to address the challenging medical and behavioral issues that face older patients and their families. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life, Death, Law. To find out more about this episode or to send me a question or a suggested topic for future podcasts, go to lifedeathlaw.com, send an email to lifedeathlawpodcast at gmail.com, or leave me a voicemail message on the Life Death Law podcast line, 669-232-0872. That's 669-232-0872. To subscribe to Life Death Law, go to SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So take care, and remember, when it comes to life and death and law, we are all in the same boat. Until next time, I'm Liza Hanks. Bye.